Louisiana, back to Illinois, and now back to Idaho and Oregon. And so this is kind of winding it down, but it's it's great to be here. I tell you, driving down, I came down from, um, is it Baker City? Is that the name of it? And there's a big stagecoach up the, over there on the hill. How many know which one I'm talking about? And the sun was setting, and I tell you, that was one of the most spectacular views I've had in a long time. And so that was really, really special to, to come down that mountain and see all that. Uh, my family's not here with me tonight. I have a little video greeting uh, from them to you. And before we run this video, I'd like to say this. I told my girls and I told the kids, I said, you have to smile when you greet the congregations there in the United States. You can't look like some grumpy teenagers, so you need to smile when, when you say hi. And so there's a little extra smileage on the video because Dad was behind the camera trying to get him to smile. But go ahead and if you can run that. What do you guys think? Yeah, Ecuador's a tiny little country down there in South America. It's about the size of the state of Nevada with almost 17 million people, but it packs a big punch for being a tiny little country. On one side, you have the Amazon jungle with different people groups and animals and plants and all that. You come up out of that jungle and you're in the second highest mountain range in the world, the Andean Mountains. We've lived in the valley of the volcanoes with these snow-capped volcanoes for the past 11 years. And you come down on the other side and you get into the coastal rainforest. And if you hop on an airplane and fly one hour, 20 minutes due west, you land in the Galapagos Islands. Have any of you ever heard of the Galapagos Islands? Yeah, and so it's a beautiful little country. It's been a great privilege of ours to serve as missionaries down there. And uh, let's start off here. Can you go to the next slide? There's the four areas right there. And before we start off, why don't we read a passage of scripture together? Can we do that? And we have two options here. I'd like all those that are under 30 to read the top part and all those over 30 to read the bottom part. <laughs> you guys don't like that idea. <laughs> Why don't we all read the top part together? Can we do that? We'll stick with that. On the count of three, uno, dos, tres. Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Mark 5:19. Jesus healed the demon-possessed man. And after the healing, he said to the man, he said, you know what, just go back to your little town, go back to your family, and tell them the great things that God has done for you. How many of you are here tonight because God has done a wonderful thing in your life? Amen? And so am I. You know, that verse has special meaning to us. We've been down there uh, 11 years, and every couple of years we come back. And, and when we come back, we literally come back to our family. When I was over there in Portland, after I saw you, Greg, I had prior made arrangements. I was thinking, I'm on the West Coast. I need to fly down to Arizona because that's where my mother's at. And five years ago, my mother had a stroke. And for the past five years, my mother has been unable to speak. But she tries to speak. The words are all mumbled. But she understands everything. And so I flew from Portland, and I flew down to Phoenix and got a rental car and drove an hour, drove into the, you know, the driveway of my mother and she saw me, she recognized me, she come running out trying to speak, dot, 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 dot. And, and, and I saw her and I put my arms around her, I said, hi mom, I love you. And she put her arms around me and it was just wonderful. She kept kissing my cheek. I said, mom, you got to stop kissing my cheek, right? <laughs> But just to, to be with family, to be with my son who's been back here the past couple years, and not only that, 
Everywhere we've gone as missionaries, I've spoken in hundreds and hundreds of churches over these years, and every church that we've been to, they have always, our Nazarene churches, received us as family. Amen? And so um, give yourself a hand for being part of the family. Can you do that? Yeah, I've got to wake up here a little bit, um, <laughs> including myself. <laughs> and so since we're family, we're just going to share some family stories on the North Indian field, how God is changing our family. And so let's get started here. Next slide. Oh, that's the first slide. Oh, there we go. Okay. There's a map, and I'll step on this side. There's the region, the South America region. There's the North Indian field right there. That's been our piece of the pie as missionaries. That little country there is Ecuador. The equator cuts right across through Ecuador. Ecuador. What's the country right up above it? You have two options, Colombia or Venezuela. How many think it's Colombia? Raise your hands. How many think it's Venezuela? Raise your hands. How many are not sure? Raise your hands. <laughs> well, you're absolutely right. That is Colombia up above Ecuador. And there's Venezuela. There's Peru, Brazil. So as missionaries, uh, we go into Colombia, we go into Venezuela, we work with their pastors, we do evangelistic campaigns, and when some of them feel called to ministry, many of them leave those two countries and they come over to Quito, Ecuador, we're asked to take classes. So we're always interacting with one another, and I'm going to share stories from all three countries tonight. Next slide. There's a young guy in the middle between my son and I. His name is Joan Camacardo, and he's from the country of Venezuela. And the most popular sport in Venezuela is baseball is correct. Give her a hand. Can you do that? Yeah. Do you watch baseball? No. Did I tell the story of Portland? Oh, that's cheating. Okay, come on up. You can tell the story. I'll see how well you remember it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the most popular sport. Now, soccer is really, really popular in Venezuela, but baseball is the most popular. As a matter of fact, when Joan was a young boy, he didn't have money for a baseball bat. He was poor. He didn't have money for a glove. And he said, Dana, for a bat, I got an old broomstick. And that was my bat. I had no money for a bat. And we used to collect those bottle caps, and my friends and I would collect a whole bunch of bottle caps, and they'd start pitching those bottle caps, and I took that broomstick, and I started hitting at those bottle caps, and I got pretty good at hitting those bottle caps. And then he got a glove. And then he got a baseball bat. He started playing baseball as a kid and as a teenager. And then he actually started playing professional baseball in Venezuela. Can you go to the next slide? And right here is the stadium where he had been playing. Now, that's not a bad stadium for Venezuela. As a matter of fact, the number one country sending professional baseball players to the United States is what country? Venezuela. Right behind them, Dominica Republic. Two years ago, Joan sent me an email during the World Series. And he said, Dana, do you realize in this year's World Series, there are seven Venezuelans playing in this year's World Series? And they weren't sitting on the bench. They were hitting home runs and they were doing all kinds of stuff. As a matter of fact, who won the pennant this year? Big sports fan fanatics in here, I can tell. Who won the World Series this year in October? 
And they have a guy on their team, the San Francisco Giants. They have a guy on their team named Pablo Sandoval from Venezuela. He was one of the star players of the series. He just signed a $100 million contract. That's not bad for a Venezuelan, is it? For us, it's not much, but for a Venezuelan. <laughs> $100 million. And guess what every boy's dream is in Venezuela? Is to play baseball. And that was Joan's dream, and he grew up playing baseball, living out his dream. As a matter of fact, he was being recruited by the Atlanta Braves to possibly come up and play on their triple-A team. And he had a passion for baseball, and that was it. God, no. Bible reading, no. Church attendance, none of that stuff. It was baseball. That's all he lived for. And one day he was in a very important game, and it was his turn to bat. And there were scouts, there were people watching him. And, and he walked up to the plate, and before he got to the plate, he stopped and he did something he had never done before. He said, God, if you give me a hit right now, I'll begin to serve you. It's kind of a little dangerous prayer, huh? And then he stepped up there, and they started pitching, and it got to a full count. And then the pitcher pitched the ball, and Juwan took his bat, and boom, guess what he hit? He hit a home run, and he ran around those bases. He was all happy. He was the hero of that game, and his career was taken off. And the next practice came, the next game came, the next practice game, and Juwan Kamakaro kind of forgot about that little promise he made to the Lord. Hey, I've done that. Have any of you ever done that? How many of you found out, like me and Joanne, that the Lord has a pretty good memory, doesn't he? Huh? He tends to remember what we tell him. And there Joanne completely forgot about the promise. God had answered his prayer, playing baseball. So he blew out his shoulder. And that slowed him down quite a bit. He wasn't playing baseball for a while. As a matter of fact, someone has said, I don't know if it's great theology or not, but I do believe it. He says, sometimes... When God wants to get our attention, he begins to bang on our bodies. Because when we're hurting, we're more open to him. Can any of you relate to that? If we're not hurting, busy with life, things just carry on, and that's how it is. And so John, uh, Joan hurt his shoulder, and he went back home, and he entered into depression. And then a few days later, all of a sudden, he remembered, oh my goodness, this happened to me because I never followed through with my promise. It's a punishment from God. And he got up and he left the house. And as he was walking through this big city, this neighborhood where he lived, because many Nazarenes gave to missions, amen, and many Nazarenes gave missionary offerings, as he was walking, there was a Nazarene church in that neighborhood. He didn't know anything about the church, but he walked up to the door, knocked on the door, and the pastor just happened to be there. Normally they're all working full-time jobs during midweek stuff, happened to be there, and the pastor said, can I help you? And John said, yeah, can I come in and talk to you for a minute? And he walked into our Nazarene church, and he told him the story at the baseball diamond that day. And the pastor said to Joanne, he said, do you want to serve Jesus or not? Folks, that's a simple question, isn't it? And he said, I do. And then right there in that Nazarene church, Joanne received Jesus. And Jesus completely changed his life. Amen? And God healed his shoulder. He was getting back into baseball again. But he said, Dana, after I received Jesus, things were different in my life. Can I get an amen on that? 
I don't understand some of this new Christianity stuff where people said I received Jesus, but there's no change whatsoever in their lives. I don't understand that. Do you guys understand that? But with Joanne, everything changed. As a matter of fact, he said before I received Jesus, he said baseball was up here and God wasn't even in the equation. And after I received Jesus, he said, Dana, all of a sudden it was a tie. Well, that's a pretty good jump, isn't it? He lived and breathed baseball. That was his passion. He started going to Sunday school. He started attending more church services. And he got sanctified. And he said, Lord, you can take preeminence in my life. Just show me what you want me to do. Amen? And he got a call, not from Atlanta, but he got a call from the creator of the universe. Amen? He got a call from Jesus to leave Venezuela, to come over to Ecuador to receive training to be a missionary, to be a pastor. He completed all his training. Next slide, Greg, if you can go to that. There he is right there. He married an Ecuadorian named Astrid. They got a little baby boy. Next slide. And there they are up on the border of Colombia in Ibarra, Ecuador, planting a new church, a new church of the Nazarene called La Puerta Abierta, the Open Door Church of the Nazarene. About five weeks ago, I received an email. They just started in January, and they had over 100 people in their service on Sunday morning. Amen? They're working with Extreme Nazarene Ministries. Have any of you ever heard of that, that group a little bit? And so they're partnering with them over the next two years. Give the Lord a hand for what he done in the life of Joanne. Can you do that? Next slide. Hey, there's a guy by the name of John. Now, you didn't hear this story at the Working Witness Center, did you? Okay, good. Have any of you heard this story? He doesn't look very Ecuadorian, does he? He's not. He's from Long Beach, California. But the thing I like about John is he loves missions. He's a lot like you. You guys are a great mission-minded church. I've heard a lot of missionaries have come through this church. John's a lot like you. He loves missions. As a matter of fact, a number of years ago, John and some team members from Long Beach, they got a team together and they flew down to Ecuador to work in a neighborhood, next slide, called Mapa Singe, Ecuador. And if you take a look at that photo, that's what that neighborhood looks like. The houses are very, very poor, made out of sticks, made out of bamboo. And let me say this. When a group of gringos from the United States of America arrive in Mapasinga, Ecuador, it causes quite a stir. They never get Americans or white people coming through that neighborhood. And when they showed up in that neighborhood, I mean, people came out just to look at the white people. And you know who really came out? Were the little kids. And there's all kinds of kids on the coast of Ecuador. And all kinds of kids came out to look at that work and witness group. And they're watching them work. And John saw all those little kids down there. He didn't speak a lot of Spanish. But he thought, you know what? I'm going to reach out to those kids. You do not have to speak another person's language to love on them. Can I get an Amen. I didn't realize how many Spanish people are in Idaho and are on this district. I listened to a Spanish radio station coming in. Amen? How many of you speak pretty good Spanish? How many of you can love on those people even though you don't speak Spanish? We can do that, can't we? And that's what John did. He said, I don't, know, I don't speak a lot of Spanish, but I don't know love on those kids. He got down there, started playing with those kids, picking up a few words, a little bit more. And there was one boy named Freddy. 
He's about 11 or 12 years old. And John and that little boy, Freddie, they just kind of connected. They became really good friends for about two weeks. And then it got time for the group to pack up and head back to California. His friend, Freddie, was sad. And somehow John communicated. He said, you know, how would you like a letter from the United States? If you run home to your house and get your address somehow, when I get back to California, I will send you a letter. And that little boy got all happy. And he got the address, came back. They hugged, said goodbye. They flew back to California. And about a month later, John thought, you know what? I promised that little boy down in South America I was going to write him a letter. Guess what he did? He got out his pen and he wrote a letter. And by a miracle of God, it arrived in that neighborhood. Right? They don't have a postal system like we do. And little Freddie, he got his letter. He looked on the outside. He knew it was John. He's like, wow, he's all happy. He had never had a letter from the United States of America, that 12-year-old boy. He opened it up to read it, got all happy, and he went, oh. Yeah, he had a problem. The letter was written in English. Little Freddie read and spoke Spanish. He didn't understand. He didn't know what the letter was saying. But because many of you prayed for missions... Because many Nazarenes gave missionary offerings, there was a Nazarene missionary from the United States going in and out of that church where they had been working, and that little boy knew it, and he knew that American could read English. And so he sat and he watched. He waited. And guess what? He saw him. And little Freddie saw the missionary, and he grabbed his letter, and he went, Right? Ran over there, handed the letter to the missionary, and he said, Usted puede traducir este carta para mí? And the missionary said, No problem, I can translate that letter for you, no problem. He translated the letter for the little boy. He's all happy, he grabbed the letter, ran back home. And about a month later, guess what happens? John gets out his pen again, right? Sends that boy a second letter. And by a miracle again, it arrives in the neighborhood. That little boy gets a second letter. He knew the process, right? Kept looking, saw the missionary going out of the church, grabbed his letter, ran over there, handed it to the missionary. He translated. He came running back home all happy. And John kept sending that little boy letters in English. And that little boy had to keep going back and forth, back and forth to the church to get him translated. And guess what happened to him? Come on, folks, wake up tonight. It's not bedtime yet. And guess what happened to him? He got saved. He ended up receiving Jesus. Amen? That's what happened to him. So one person said, oh, I know what happened to him. He learned how to read English. <laughs> hey, that happened too. <laughs> but getting saved is a whole lot more important than learning how to read English. Amen? He got saved and he grew up in our church as a teen, started taking God seriously. And he always felt he wanted to be a strong Christian leader down there in South America to impact many lives for Jesus. John heard about it, heard about his call to ministry, sent a little bit of money down there to South America to help that boy with his education. Graduated with some classes, sent a little bit more, graduated, entered in as a pastor. Take a look at the slide here. Next slide. And here he is right there, Reverend Freddy Guerrero. Actually, right now you can put Dr. Freddy Guerrero. For many years, president of Nazarene Theological Seminary, over 1,300 people below his authority and leadership. Hey, when 
How many of you ever heard of Billy Graham? I'll start there. Has anybody heard of Billy? Yeah? Okay, we're gaining here. What's his son's name? Franklin Graham. Yeah, you guys know. And he has a program called Operation Christmas Child. Samaritan's Purse stuff, those shoebox things. Do they do that out here in the wilderness? That's actually arrived over here? Hallelujah. Amen. <laughs> How many have ever done those shoebox things or seen them? Is that right? That's wonderful. That's great. There's millions that go out from the States. And when those planes land in Ecuador full of shoeboxes, you know who has the authority over all of them, who it all goes through? Freddie. Head of the largest Bible society in Ecuador, what's his name? Freddie. One of the most influential Christian leaders in Ecuador, if not South America. And I have a question for us all tonight. How did that happen? Yeah. One guy, Christian guy in California, got out his pen and he said, I'm going to write letters down there to a little poor boy on the coast of Ecuador and I'm going to touch his life for Jesus. Isn't that what happened? I didn't get a chance to do it tonight, but normally almost all the churches I go through, I say, could you show me the nursery? Can you show me the children's department? Can I go in the youth room? And I always try to walk through all the churches I visit and pray for the teachers and pray for the babies and pray for the kids and the teens. And as I'm praying, I always think of this story. Amen? You know, sometimes you can get a little tired working with kids and teens. We do a lot of children's ministry we have over the years down there in South America. And for the ladies or people working in the you know, the nursery, it's not a whole lot of fun changing dirty diapers back there, is it? But how many think that's an important ministry? That's important, isn't it? And so all of you that work with the kids or help with vacation Bible school or baking or all that for the kids' activities or things that you do for the kids, hey, take heart. Or your coffee shop, that I think you mentioned that, uh, that you're trying to do to reach young people, take heart because you just never know what God is going to do with our young people. Amen? Give the Lord a hand to keep you awake tonight. <laughs> hey, you're tired. What about me? i got to drive back to Napa tonight, so hang in there. I could ask someone to come with me if you want to go, and then we can talk to keep me going. <laughs> Next slide. Now, you can't see that with the lights on very good. Um, that's a, maybe you could dim the lights. Um, that is a field in Ecuador. Can you see it a little better there? Yeah, you can just... Oh, not that one. Yeah, leave that one. Are you guys okay with that, like that? What kind of field is that? Rice. You're absolutely rice. I mean, right. It is a rice field. On the coast of Ecuador, there's lots of rice. And be assured of this, if you go on a work and witness team to Ecuador, you will be eating rice, arroz. They love their rice. And we've got all types of churches. We have churches in the capital city where we've been living, uh, where it's all concrete and buses and cars. And we have little country churches out in the middle of nowhere. Next slide. And here's the pastor and his wife. 
named Pastor Emilio, and they're in a little country Nazarene church that they've been in over 20-some years in the Golden Rose Church of the Nazarene. And that little country church is about the size of, you close that partition, it's about that size. That's how big their country church is, the sanctuary. And they'll have 15 to 30 people for over 20-some years. Faithful to God, faithful to preach, faithful to teach. She's faithful to work with the little kids. Really poor country church. They even take missionary offerings, a little bit that they have, and send it to the district to send it to headquarters so we can go out as missionaries. Just faithful. Hey, our little churches are important to Jesus too, aren't they? Amen? And they've always thought that. And the interesting thing about this couple is as they're fulfilling their call, they live about two miles behind the church. And most of our pastors, most of our leaders in Ecuador do not own vehicles. Either they take the bus or they walk. How many of you walked over two miles to get here tonight? Hmm. How many of you walked over a mile to get here tonight? How many of you, like me, a good old American, drove your car up to the parking lot and closed the door and walked from there to the sanctuary? How many did that? Yeah, that's our style, isn't it? Yeah, we're a little bit different here. Hey, they don't have that privilege of where they're at. They're dirt poor where they live. But they walk two miles, four, five, six times a week, back and forth to the church to preach and teach. And they'll grab their stuff and they'll walk, walk, this elderly couple, dip down through the dry riverbed, come up over the other side, walk to go preach and teach. During the dry season, right now is December. And in December, guess what starts to come? The rain. And as those rains begin to come, they'll keep walking because there's 20 people waiting at church for them. And all of a sudden, that water will get up to here and they'll bring a change of clothes and they'll wait across the water. And then in January and February, the inundaciones begin to hit. Heavy, heavy flooding. And you know what? They'll walk, they'll get their stuff, and all of a sudden, it's like a Russian river. And there's 15 people waiting for them a mile away. And they always thought it's kind of important for the pastor to attend church. Is that important to you guys? Can I get an amen for your pastor? I know he's on vacation, but it always makes me nervous. Like, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> they always thought it was important for the pastor to attend church. There'd be 15 people waiting for him. And it's heavy flooding season. And they're walking, walking. And it's a river. They're waiting for him over on the other side of the river a mile away. You know what this elderly couple would do? They'd get out these big Ziploc bags, put their pants, shirt, change of clothes, Bible, anything important, seal it up, put a string around it. They'd get to the water, start getting in deeper, deeper. That's what they do. Because there's 15 people waiting for him. Folks, what do you call that? You call that dedication? You call that... You know what they say down there in Ecuador? They say this elderly couple, they have a great compromiso. They have a great commitment to Jesus and to the people of their church to, to do that. I heard about it up in the capital city where we live. I was talking to the district superintendent, Eduardo Mesa. He was telling me the story. I said, what? 
That cannot be true. We don't we don't have elderly couples in Ecuador swimming across rivers to preach and teach. He said, Dana, come on down. Right? So I got a ticket, airline ticket, and I went on down. And when I went on down, I took that photo. And it was true. And I thought, oh my goodness. We need to help this couple. They're getting old. They can't swim like they used to. <laughs> Amen? We're going to lose them. They still feel called to serve. And we have a tremendous ministry in our church called Work and Witness. And you've been out on trips. How many have ever been on a Work and Witness trip? Raise your hands. Wow, that's wonderful. And I called some of our friends up in Calgary, Alberta. You know where that's at? I don't know which way is north. <laughs> I was right then, right? Yeah. That way, north, told my friend about it, Eric Ewing out of Calgary First Church. He said, oh my goodness, we need to get a group of people together, a team, and we need to go down and help them. And they did. And they went on down. And because many of you gave to missions, and because many of you prayed for missions, there was money in the church to send a missionary family down there to meet the group and to help those people. You know who the family was? Ta-da! <laughs> Amen? We don't just sit in the office the whole time. <laughs> Next slide. And so there we are down there with the group. We went down. And there's the church. If you look on this screen, that's, I mean, that's, how big, that's probably bigger over there. That little section. The sanctuary. Church of the Nazarene. There's the Sunday school classrooms. They're really tiny. Thank God most Ecuadorians are kind of small. And guess what we built for them right on top? You're right. We built a little parsonage for them. And no, they're no longer swimming during the rainy season. They just live right up in their little apartment. Amen. Can we get a hand to keep you all awake still? Or to keep me awake? <laughs> Next slide. We'll just keep on going here. And I think... Greg, you may have heard about this guy. Maybe some of you guys have. How many of you recognize that name, Felix Vargas? Well, let me say this. I'll, I'll go into it. Let me say this. He's from the country of Colombia. And when I mention the word Colombia, what comes to your minds? Okay, we got the bad one out first. Drug cartels. What else? Coffee. If you ask any American, Colombia, oh, right away, it's drugs or coffee. How many of you have ever tried Colombian coffee? Raise your hands. How many of you have ever tried Colombian? No, I won't go there. <laughs> I'll start some counseling sessions, delivery sessions here. <laughs> That's what we know Colombia for. Drugs and coffee. Ask any American, they all, it's always the same. Drugs and coffee. But if anybody ever, ever says to you, Columbia, again, never say those words. Or don't start out with those words. How's that sound? Because I think there is a better word that describes Colombia. And what they're saying down there in South America, they're using the Spanish word, avivamiento. There is a tremendous avivamiento sweeping through Colombia. And that word, avivamiento, is the word revival. So if anybody ever says to you, Columbia, what should you say? Say it again. 
and then go to drugs and coffee. <laughs> but when there's revival, hopefully, you know, the drug thing goes down. Amen? I got an email from my supervisor, Dwight Rich. Maybe some of you know him. He was over in Cali, Colombia about five weeks ago. And our house of prayer church, Pasa Ancho, Church of the Nazarene, Casa de Oración, they had a little outreach five years ago. I mean, five weeks ago. Our little church. You know how many people came to their little outreach? Take a guess. More. More than 5,000. Keep going. Come on, folks. How many? More than 20,000. <laughs> 50,000 people came to a local Nazarene church service in Cali, Colombia five weeks ago. They lost count at 50,000. They had over 4,000 decisions for Jesus in one day in one church in Colombia. Folks, that is revival. Can I get an amen? That's what's going on in Colombia. All I can think of is think of that pillar of fire that led the Hebrews out of Egypt. You know, you know that story? Just think of that pillar of fire going across the earth, the face of the earth, and, it's, and it stops over Colombia, and it stopped there a few years ago. And that fire is sitting there, and it's spinning and spinning in the Baptists, the Adventists, the Pentecostals, the Catholics, the non-Christians, and even the bad guys are getting caught up in that thing. Amen? I want you to think of the meanest person you ever met your entire life. Nobody look at the person next to you. <laughs> the other one, hmm. Multiply it by a thousand. And you may come close to entering the life of my good friend Felix. He lived with us down there. As a matter of fact, right, Greg, we made a movie about him. The Church of the Nazarene has been around since 1908. We made a movie on Harmon Smelzenbach. I can't even say his name tonight. Smelzenbach. He's probably been here. Or his son. And then there was another movie, and the third movie we ever made was on the life of him, the next slide. And it was called, in Spanish, De Armas a las Almas. In English, it's called From the Dark. And it's a miraculous story how God saved this man. Did any of you watch that movie? How many watched the movie? Just two of you? You guys should try to watch it one night or in a. And it tells a brief story yeah, of, of Felix. And basically abused as a kid, went to live with his uncle, uncle in the military, started military training when he was 11 or 12 years old with guns, shot and killed his first thief when he was 12 in the house, joined the military at 17, entered into their elite forces uh, to fight the drug war, to fight the guerrillas down there. That war is still going on in the jungles. You guys know that stuff, right? There's thousands of them still got involved in the war, went to Central America to train with the United States Green Berets, went back to Colombia, entered into the war, and they said, man, you need better, than, better training than that. You know where they sent them? Israel. 
Those guys know how to fight in Israel. Train with the Mossad. Have you ever heard of the Mossad? That's who he trained with. Best in the world. Went back to Colombia and fighting in the war. And when they would catch those bad guys, they would bring them to Felix and he made sure you talked. You guys got the idea? And that's what he did for years without even a conscience. And then he almost got killed in a gun battle, got wounded, saw all kinds of corruption going on in the military. They'd let the bad guys go if somebody paid them off. He said, oh my goodness, I'm going to get killed in this military with all this stuff going on. He said, forget that. He left the Columbia military and where's a guy like that going to get a job? Well, it's not on the movie, but you know where he got a job to start? At a discotheque, working as a bouncer. You guys know what a bouncer is? He's a big dude. And one day he was bouncing some people out the door in this prestigious discotheque where there was a lot of money floating around. And some guys saw him and they said, what's your name? He said, my name is Felix Vargas. They said, how would you like to earn a lot more money uh, working for us than working for this discotheque? He said, yeah, I'd be interested in a new job. And they said, you go wait out on that street corner tomorrow and my boss and I will come by and talk to you about a new job opportunity. And you know who it was? Senor Rodriguez, the drug kingpin of the Colombian Cali drug cartel, the largest criminal organization in the world. And there he used his skills for many, many years fighting against the other drug cartel, the Medellin cartel with Pablo Escobar. Have you ever heard of Pablo? For control of not millions, but billions of dollars of money. He said, Dana, you know what I got for my Christmas bonus? Million dollars cash. That's just Christmas bonus. That's the kind of money he is, but it was blood money. They were fighting, killing, kidnapping, torturing for years and years and years. And and finally after the killing of Pablo, things really blew up down there. Felix and his men were in the city. There's still controversy as to who killed the killing of Pablo Escobar. The Colombian police claim responsibility, but it's a controversial thing to this day. And after the killing of Pablo, um, the Kali cartel thought Felix needed to go into hiding. And they thought a great city for a Latin person to hide in would be our wonderful city of Miami. Right? Hey, a Spanish guy can hide out pretty good down there, can't he? Felix said, hey, Dana, I had a house in Fort Lauderdale. I had another house in Miami. I'd wake up in the one house and scoot on over to the next house just to make it look like I was going to work so nobody would get suspicious. Hey, he didn't need to worry about that because when his feet touched, our, touched the United States, our government knew who he was and they were watching him. As a matter of fact, it was a Nazarene guy from Pompano Beach Church of the Nazarene that helped put that guy in the clinker, the federal penitentiary, for eight years in Miami. And we caught him, not with guns, not with drugs, but we caught him with 330 some thousand dollars cash, and our government knew it was drug money. And off to prison he went. And there he sat, sat. He said, Danny, you know, I've been in prison a number of years. He said, you know how many visitors I had? Take a guess, folks. He was a foreigner in our prison system. You know how many visitors had? He said, the only one I ever had was my court-appointed attorney, and my bosses told me you never rat on anybody. My uncle also taught me you never betray anybody or anything. You know how many visitors he had? None. 
just this court-appointed attorney. One day he saw two women walking through the visitor's area, one black lady and another lady, and he said to his friends, wow, who's that lady walking through there? I want her to come and visit me. <laughs> he was dying for a visitor. Got her phone number, called her at her house, a Christian lady, Liliana, strong Christian lady, and she said, yeah, I'll go, I'll go out there and reach out to him, which she did for years, followed him to Columbia, got back to Columbia, picked right up where he left off, kidnapping, torturing, killing other bad guys. It was war between the cartels, between families, and uh, there she suffered for years until God finally answered her prayer and ended up receiving Jesus. Amen. This is on the video. He's a good friend of mine. You know, after he got saved, he went to our Nazarene pastor. He said, Pastor, I got some things bothering me. I don't know why I'm sharing all this stuff with you. I need to get on the road. <laughs> you want to hear? He says, Pastor, I got some things bothering me. I've got all this money, houses and car dealerships and lots and lots of money. It's all blood money. I've got cars, beautiful cars. I've driven prostitutes in those cars. And now i got my wife and kids. What should I do? You can see a greedy pastor. Hmm, I know what you can do. Not our guys. They said, we need to pray. Ask God for wisdom. Hey, if you lack wisdom, if you ask in faith, he will give liberally to those that seek him. James talks about that. God gave him wisdom. And he got with our pastor. They drove to the poorest section of the city in Kali. Prayed for wisdom. Come with me. Come with me. Come with me. Come, 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 come. 30-some families. And they said, you're not going to be living over here anymore. You're going to be living over here on this part of the city. Bought all brand new houses. Filled them up full of appliances. Bought every man a vehicle, a taxi, so they could earn an income to support their family. He gave it all away, except for one house, which I slept in his house. He said, I couldn't give this house away because I didn't want to throw my wife and kids out on the street. Amen? Folks, that's repentance, isn't it? Now he's an evangelist in the Church of the Nazarene. If you get a chance to watch the movie, you should. It's a, I could spend all night here telling about details of my friend. But we don't have all night. Um, but I will tell you one story. He always prays for opportunities to share the gospel. Do we do that? He always prays for opportunities to share Jesus. Do I do that? Do you do that? That's a good question, isn't it? And one day he was on a flight flying from Lima, Peru, down to Argentina, where our regional office is. And they had switched his flights around. They said, Felix, you're going out on a night flight. I said, okay, God, you're in control. He got on the airplane, and he was seated up front in the airplane, and the plane was picking up speed, going down the runway in Lima, picking up speed, and boom, there was like a big boom explosion underneath the plane, and the pilot aborted the takeoff. And there they were stopped at the end of the runway at night. And the flight attendants went into shock. They didn't know what to do. And the passengers could feel heat coming up from underneath the plane. And people were getting really jittery. And then one lady looked out the window and she saw the fire trucks coming with the sirens. And she started screaming because they knew something was burning underneath the plane. And she started yelling. And chaos was beginning to break out on that airplane with him on it. Now he is highly, highly trained. That does help. 
But he prays for courage. And when everybody, the chaos was breaking out on the plane, he jumped up out of his seat and he was in front. He looked on at the passengers and he yells out, Be quiet! In his booming voice. How many of you old people like me remember the commercial when E.F. Hutton speaks? <laughs> How many remember that? Everybody what? Listens. And when Felix Vargas yelled, Be quiet! It went dead silent on that airplane. And he said, listen to me, listen to me. We are not going to die on this airplane tonight. Look, the fire trucks are almost here. Whatever's burning underneath this plane, they're going to put it out. Have you thought about why this had, ha has happened? Why God has spared our lives? And he said, what would have happened if this plane would have taken off and the explosion would have occurred in the air and this airplane would have crashed to the ground? Where would you all have gone? He said, either you all would have gone to heaven to be with Jesus, or you would have gone to hell, where the heat and the flames are a whole lot hotter than what we're experiencing right now inside this airplane. Folks, that's an evangelistic message, isn't it? Yeah, he did. He said, God has spared us. There he got this thing almost all I'm going to see my family, so are you. But if you're not sure, and this is basically what he told them, where you would have gone... I would like to lead you in a prayer of faith because Jesus is waiting for you. And he said, Dana, in that darkened airplane, people were sobbing and crying and praying. He said, I couldn't tell who all prayed or who didn't, but when we got off, military people even came up and gave me a big hug and said, thank you, thank you, thank you. Can I get an amen for that? I said, now that we're back in the States, Lord, help me to have more courage. Hey, it's got to start with us. Us old people. Amen? They're just going to follow our example. It's true, is it or not? And if we're not doing anything, how can we expect our younger people to do something? I'm going to pray that I can be an evangelist when I get back to her and have a little bit of this courage. Amen? And we got to pray that. Speaking of courage, next slide. There's a guy, courageous, from Colombia, studying to be a pastor, father, successful Nazarene pastor, Reverend Stalin Ortez, his father last year, church of three or four hundred people in Colombia, well-loved, well-liked in the community, and the mayor of the community was in a re-election campaign last year. And they thought, oh, it'd be good to have that popular Nazarene pastor on my re-election campaign. And his father thought, well, if I get involved with the mayor, I can meet more people, influence more people, get out there some more. And he decided his father, Jonathan's father, Stalin Ortez, to help the mayor with his re-election campaign. And he got involved with the mayor. And when he got involved in the mayor's office, he saw some ugly stuff. Oh, my goodness. He thought, me as a Nazarene pastor associated with this corrupt mayor? I can't do that. And he withdrew. So forget that. And the mayor didn't really like that decision. And he began to send some threats against Jonathan's father last year. And Jonathan told me minutes before we took that picture, he said, my pappy called me aside. And my pappy told me, he said, son, if anything ever happens to me, God's going to raise you up to lead this church. 
And then my pappy spoke to me about the deepest issues that a father and a son could talk about. And then he called my brothers and sisters and he went all the way down the road, talked to them about their life goals and what they wanted to do with their lives, told them how much he loved them. And a few days later, he went over to our big revivals going on over there in Cali for his own meeting with other pastors, finished the meeting, the pastor's meeting. His father hopped in the car. He did have a car. Driving through Cali, Colombia last year, stopped at a stoplight with another man, the, the semaphoro. And the semaphoro turned green, or it turned red, and he's waiting at the red light. And while he's waiting there, hands behind the wheel, some guys on motorcycle pulled up in the other lane. Boom, 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 boom. And his dad went to be with Jesus last year. And we got it rough back here. That's what we think. Sometimes, I'm not trying to diminish our problems. But we're losing pastors out there. And I say all that to say this just to pray for Jonathan. Can you guys remember him in your prayers? That was two weeks after it happened. He left Columbia, came over just to try to get away and be, spend some time with us and with his friends in Ecuador. He said, Dana, I have so much vengeance. We know it was the mayor. It was the mayor's nephew. We know who did it. There were witnesses. Nobody's been arrested. Our family wants to take vengeance upon the mayor's office and the mayor. But the Bible tells us that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We've got to leave it with him. Once you know, the mayor came down with terminal cancer. The nephew had all kinds of problems. He said, he said the only good thing that happened when they assassinated my father two weeks ago, he said the only good thing that happened, it was broad daylight. There were people around. There were witnesses on the sidewalks, bystanders. They sped off and they came up there and there, he had just died. And these bystanders walked up to the car and they started weeping and wailing and screaming and crying. And they said, whoever he was, he was a godly man. They said the presence of God was so overwhelming when his father died that people just started wailing and crying. I follow mine when I go, don't you want the presence of God in your life? And when, I, when you go and when I go, amen? And so, you know, whenever there is a good, strong revival, people pay a price. And I do believe the reason that revival is so prominent and so great in Colombia is because there have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Christians assassinated, including some of our Nazarenes. That's how the early church started, wasn't it? On the blood of the martyrs, on the blood of the disciples. Pray for Jonathan. I've got to hurry up here. Next slide. There is a revival going over there. How many of you have ever had teenagers or currently have teenagers in your life? Raise your hands. Now, I want you to think back a ways for some of us. What would you do if your 16-year-old girl said to your mom and dad, hey, all my friends are going by bus across Columbia to go to a youth rally over there, and I want to go with them? What would you say? <laughs> There's a war going on over there. Sure, go ahead. Is that what you'd say? No problem. Take a peanut butter jelly sandwich with you. That's not what I said. I said, I don't know about that. That makes me nervous. Uh, I went and talked to my supervisor about it, and he said, Dana, 
We do not send 16-year-old missionary girls from the United States on a bus across Colombia. We just don't do that. However, if she can get money for an airline ticket, and if she can find someone 18 years old or a comp to accompany, accompany her out of the country with all the paperwork and all that, she can go. Next slide. And if you look closely, uh, you can see it there. There's my daughter right there, Courtney. She went over to that revival thing over there in Columbia for the youth rally a couple years ago. She still talks about it today. She talks about moving to Columbia. Quitting college, moving to Columbia. But you know what? When she came back from that conference, she had her Spanish Bible in one hand. She had her English Bible in the other hand. She's reading back and forth between the two Bibles trying to deepen her relationship with the Lord. I'll be honest with you. Sometimes missionary kids have problems. My girls are having a hard time. They just told me, the United States is your country. I didn't grow up. That's not my country. They go to the public school and the other girls throw their books, grab their stuff, move them away, won't talk to them. I don't know what it is with some of these teenage I say some of the teenage girls. It's not easy to be a teenage girl these days. They're mean. Especially if you're a new girl coming in at 16 years old. I do ask you to pray for my girls. Amen. But I say all that to say this, that the Lord is good and he's going to help them as we adjust back here. And uh, I do want to thank you for sending my girl because um, the big bosses said we could use deputation funds and missionary funds to send our, our girl over there to Columbia where God touched her. And I say all that to say this, sometimes there's district events, local events with teens and, and children's events. We've got to do all we can to get our teens and our youth at these events because when you can get them away from their setting and get them with other teens and Christian speakers, you never know what God is going to do with our kids when we send them to these things. Amen? One more story. We had some people call us up and they said, we want to go deep, deep, deep in the Ecuadorian jungle. I've never been really deep in that Amazon jungle. Have any of you ever been deep in there? I've heard stories what it's like in there. And so these guys called up and said, no, we want to go show the Jesus film way back in there. And so they sent some money down. Now, how many of you ever been out camping in these mountains or anything? You guys do that, right? And you need tents and probably rifles around here and there are no rifles we could bring down there. <laughs> Sleeping bags, Coleman stove, rubber boots, uh, typhoid stuff, malaria stuff, you know, generators, speakers, screens, gasoline. We got all that stuff together and these two guys came down to Quito. We drove eight hours and then we got in a bus and we went about another eight hours through those mountains. It got dark and all of a sudden the bus driver stopped and he said basically he said this is the end of the road everybody get out and so we got out in the dark and there was a guy waiting for us and the guy said you're sleeping over there you guys are sleeping over there and we slept in these like shack things next slide can you go to that and that's where we were I slept there and and there's where these guys if you look right here on the left there's Chuck Springer he's been to over 35 countries showing the Jesus film 
He's from California. He loves to go out and evangelize. And you look right there, there's Gerald, a pastor from Southern California, a church of 4,000, local pastor, district superintendent, local pastor, another pastor. Who's that guy right there with the white hat on? He looks a lot like me. That's my son, Christian. It was summertime. I said, son, we're going in the jungle for two weeks on an evangelistic campaign. He said, dad, I'm not going. I don't want to go. And I grew up... I may be an old-timer, but I grew up where the parents had the final word in the house. Did you guys ever grow up like that? Hey, they're trying to change that on us now. <laughs> Don't let them do it. I said, you're going. And he went. And we had our breakfast. Next slide. We got into our canoe, went up the jungle river for about five hours in the canoe to go evangelize the Shuar Indians, the indigenous Shuar. Next slide, you can see them right here. That's a taxi. Um, that's a river taxi. That's how they get around out there in the jungles. They either walk or they take that, those taxis. And the Shuar Indians, they're really famous in Ecuador for one thing. You know what it is? Anybody know? Next slide. Head shrinkers. How many ever heard of head shrinkers? Some of you have? That's what they're famous for down there in Ecuador. You know, years ago, they would spear each other and kill each other and off goes the head and pull out the bones and get some special herbs and spices and boil them and shrink them all down. And, and they would put these heads on, on a necklace. And then they would wear it as a necklace to intimidate their en enemies. Hey, I'm glad. I'm kind of a bald guy. I wouldn't look very good on a necklace, huh? <laughs> they don't do that anymore. But that's what they're well known for, the Shuar Indians. And so that's where we're going back to. It's been outlawed for the last 30, 40 years. And so they don't do it. But we went back there to evangelize with them. And the scouting report, they said, hey, once you get out of that canoe, you just unload all that stuff, and it's a 10-minute walk to the village. That's what they told us, kind of the scouting report. And so the, the pilot of the canoe, or whatever you want to call him, he said, this is it, everybody get out. We unloaded all that stuff, and there was like a half a mountain we had to climb to get to the trail, which was about a two-mile walk to the village. And we had all that stuff, we're unloading it, and we looked up on top of the hill, and there were some Schwar Indians on horseback looking down at us, kind of shaking their heads. And I knew what they were thinking. They were thinking this, those are some stupid white people right there. That's what they were thinking. These are stupid white people. Look at all that junk they're bringing in here. They'll never get through this jungle with all that stuff. And they were absolutely right. By the time we got it up to the, where they were, that was it. There's no way we were going to get that all the way down that jungle trail. Thank God they understood Spanish. They had their horses. Next slide. And here you can see them right there. They put our stuff, most of our stuff, on their horses, and they said, yeah, our village is down that way a couple miles, and we'll see you down there. And these are people we never even met before. Now, that's a little nerve-wracking, hand them all your stuff, but a good missionary keeps the important stuff. Toilet paper, <laughs> bug spray, change of clothes, right? You don't send that stuff off with people. And so projector, high-value items we kept on our backpacks. Off they went riding with all of our stuff, said, see you at the village. And so we started hiking down that trail. And as we started hiking, it got deeper, deeper, and the mud got up to almost our knees. And we were hung, hiking through this mud with these heavy backpacks on. And 
it was really tough going. And Chuck Springer, the guy I just showed you, is one of those triathlon guys. Did you ever hear of those guys? You know, the run, jump, hop, skip, I don't, you know, all that stuff they do. He's one of those guys. He's hiking through there. All of a sudden he's hiking. And I go, and his boot, his boot disappeared in the mud. And he's trying to balance with his heavy backpack. Chuck was, and his boot was gone. He hollered, help, help. And I worked my way back, pulled his boot out, got it on his, you know, back on his foot again. He said, I can't go anymore. I'm done. Oh, oh no. This is not good. Because the sun was setting. I thought, wow, what are we going to do? We cannot leave him out here on this jungle trail all alone. Let him sleep the night on the trail by himself. Right? I don't know if you know this or not, Greg. I'll just tell you. You've been on, some of you have been on these great work and witness trips and all this stuff. And you say, well, we got a big project over there. and We're doing that over there and this and that. That is not the main goal for the missionaries when you guys come. It never is. You know what the main goal is for all missionaries? I'll just be honest with you. The number one goal is the same number of people that get off that airplane. Can I get an amen? That is the goal of everything. We want that same number getting back on that airplane. And sometimes it hasn't happened that way, including in Ecuador. And so I'm like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? We can't leave them out here. God is faithful. About that time, a Shwar Indian girl, about 13 years old, come riding down the trail on a horse, a big horse. Whoa, look! Flagged her down and said, hey, can you get Chuck to the village? He can't walk anymore. And she understood Spanish. She said, yeah, hop on. And so he hopped on the back of that horse. He grabbed a hold of this little Indian girl. And I'm watching him go by. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> he had a brown hat on, a beige shirt, beige slacks, kind of a scruff, about 50-some years old. And I looked, and you know who it reminded me of? He looked just like a defeated Indiana Jones being rescued by a Schwar Indian girl. <laughs> he looked just like, wow, look at that. <laughs> so he got to the village before we did on horseback. We finally got there, and the Bible says, we bring glad tidings of great joy for all the people. Amen. And I want you to see the glad tidings and great joy. Next slide. On my son's face as we're get, getting into the village. Take a look at him. <laughs> Doesn't he look happy? Hey, if he doesn't convince you to accept Jesus, nobody will. It was rough. I mean, look at the mud. That's how deep it was up to there. Now, this is interesting. As we started, we really struggled in that mud. How many backpacks is he carrying? How about the big guy out of California? None. How about our local pastor from the jungle? He had all five of them. I mean, they're small, but they're super strong. And we finally got to that village, set up the equipment, and that whole village accepted Jesus, about 70-some people. And we spent like about a week back in that area walking and traveling around sharing Jesus, a week and a half basically. And take a look at the process we had to go through to get there next First we went in vehicle. Next. Then we went in bus. Next. Then we went in canoe. Next. Then we walked. That was the start of the trail. Next. Then Christian found a horse. He was happy. He got a little bit of a lift. Next. 
Then we all got some help. They were doing some old construction in that one area, trying to clear out some stuff. Next. Then we got to the bridge. The bridge had fallen down the night before because of the storm. Next. And they said, you can go option A. And I thought, wow, that doesn't look very seaworthy. Or option B, we opted for the other longer canoe. Next. Then we got into a ranchero, and then we went into a bigger area called Taisha, uh, about over a thousand people. We were back in there sharing Jesus, and after about a week and a half, two weeks next, we hopped in that little airplane and we flew back to our vehicles in 30 minutes. <laughs> we went out a lot lighter. Next. That's going into a different village. Uh, we come into these areas where there's all these bridges and stuff, and we'll stop at a bridge, and I'm like, well, I think we better walk across that first, right? We'll walk across it, come back, and can you imagine the conversation, three or four cars? Yeah, you can lead the way. No, go ahead, you can lead the way. <laughs> ladies first, we got large drivers, ladies first, they lead the way. Next, there's my legs. There's all kinds of bugs and insects. It is nasty. Next. And we did have to eat grub worms. Have you ever tried uncooked grub worms? They're terrible. I don't ever recommend them. Next. Now, there's a big old snake. That's an anaconda. One of our Nazarenes are in there. They, he's alive. They got his head covered and got ropes on him and stuff. He had just had dinner, a little pig. Next. Volcano next. There's our graduation. We're always training, equipping pastors, leaders. The more you can multiply leaders, the faster your church will grow. Can I get an amen? Next. There's the president of Ecuador, Rafael Correa. He has done some wonderful things. He's built new highways we can get around much easier. He spent millions on the infrastructure, a lot better now than 11 years ago. Uh, he also has hired hundreds of police officers, built new police stations throughout Ecuador, a little bit safer down there. Uh, but he's not a great fan of the United States government. As soon as he came to power six years ago, he kicked our military base out of Ecuador. And after he started kicking people out, all the U.S. companies pretty much fled Ecuador, especially the oil companies in the jungle. And uh, he's not a great fan of our political situation here. As a matter of fact, he had a mentor next right here. Some of you guys probably remember this guy, Hugo Chavez. How many remember him? He's deceased now, but he had been the president for years down there in Venezuela. And the reason I have him in my presentation is because Venezuela is part of our field as missionary staff to pray for Venezuela. It is an absolute mess down there right now. Um, you know, last year there was no toilet paper. They were coming to Ecuador to get toilet paper. You walk in the stores and their shelves are empty in many of the places. And when there's shortages, the crime rate goes up. And I've heard it said that you're better off getting off an airplane at night in Baghdad, Iraq, walking through the streets of Baghdad at night than you are walking through Caracas, Venezuela right now. Much safer in Baghdad. To the point that our general superintendent was supposed to go in there this year to ordain pastors. The head office said, we, we're not bringing him in there. Not to Venezuela. Too dangerous. So pray for Venezuela. Can you do that? Pray for Jonathan. Pray for Venezuela. One other quick little thing. We live at the seminary campus. That's where we've been living the last 11 years. 
And right beside us, our neighbors, there are great big eucalyptus trees, a whole row of them. And one day I heard the chainsaws, boom. And I went outside and I was like, wow, what's going on out there? And here were some young guys with chainsaws and some ropes way up on top, and they were felling these trees right by our house. And I said, you guys are making me nervous. I said, my house is right there. They said, oh, don't worry. No se preocupe. They said, and they basically told me that they were professionals and don't worry about it. Next slide. There's my house. <laughs> hey, they were professionals, all right. You know what they were good at? When those trees hit, they grabbed their chainsaws, chainsaws and psh, they were good. They were out of there quickly. Next slide. There's a basket. We can get you on that little basket, dangle you up over a waterfall for four quarters. That's a pretty good price for that thrill ride. Um, costs you a thousand to get down there and back, but four quarters will get you on there. Next one. Thank you for coming out tonight. Thank you for being a mission mission church, and we do appreciate you know all the love and support that you folks have given to missions over the years. Um, there's over 700 and some Nazarene missionaries in 157 countries, and we would never be there without folks like you praying for us and supporting us.